Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning and be with you. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to continue our series in the book of Mark this morning. And so before we read some scriptures together, why don't I just lead us in a short prayer this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear God, as those beautiful songs reminded us of this morning, it's such a privilege and an honor to worship you, God, to just spend a morning thinking about how awesome you are, and really, Lord, about how finite we are compared to you. We're just flesh and blood, Lord. Our world is dirt. We're passing by so quickly, and yet we know you, God, and you are eternal, and you are good, and you are the answer for everything that's hurting and broken and wrong in us. And so, God, this morning, we do praise you. We do worship you. And we ask that as we read your word, we'd be able to walk with you a little bit better, to understand you a little bit better, Lord, and to, to know you, Lord, in all of life as it passes by so quickly so that it might be full, filled, Lord, with meaning and purpose beyond just this life. So help us and, uh, in our study of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My, my family has a, a tradition called the loser's speech. And the way it works is we love to play card games together. So after we finish playing a card game together, whoever wins the card game has to give a speech to everyone who just lost, all the losers. And uh, this speech is usually filled with some encouragement for the poor losers, you know, try to cheer them up because they just got destroyed so completely. Usually it includes a little bit of tactical advice, you know, some words of wisdom to help, to help them the next time we play so that they won't be so easy to beat, that sort of stuff. And of course we laugh. We laugh the whole way through the speech and we film it because it's hilarious. It's a joke, a tradition that, that we started some years ago when something kind of like that happened and we've been doing it ever since. And uh, I'm sure that your family has uh, traditions as well that have started over the years, probably some interesting ones and some silly ones. But this morning, the question we're, we're considering is, what is God's family like? Not what is your family like or my family like, but what is God's family like? And one thing we learn from Scripture about God's family is that God's family con is comprised of everyone who believes in Jesus. Now, that might sound very, very basic. It's like, okay, Sunday School 101, the family of God, His spiritual community, is a community of people who believe in Jesus. Yes, we kind of are familiar with that idea. But I think that as basic as that idea is, it's it's worth remembering. It's worth reflecting on a little bit. Because if the family of God is made up of everyone who believes in Jesus, then that means, that means even I can be part of the family of God. Because it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or what your talents are. It doesn't matter if you're smart or if you're less smart, 
if everyone who has faith in Jesus is part of the family of God, then it means that God's eternal family is a family with arms wide open that can accept any of us. Anyone who's simply willing to admit that we can't make it into God's family on our own, but that we need Jesus to be our Messiah, our sacrifice for sins, and our resurrected King who leads us as a family in His way. And so as basic as the idea is that everyone who believes in Jesus belongs to the family of God, I think it's a beautiful truth because it means the family of God is inclusive, even inclusive for me and you if only we believe in Jesus. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3 this morning where we left off. Mark chapter 3, if you want to turn there or read along on the screen. And we'll start reading in verse 13 of Mark 3. And as we start reading here in verse 13, and we read about Jesus calling His 12 disciples, see if you can pick up on this theme of anyone who believes in Jesus is part of God's family. It says here, starting in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to Him those He wanted, and they came to Him. He appointed 12 that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 He appointed, Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonagers, which means son of sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we'll pause right there just for now, and we see this famous scene where Jesus calls his twelve disciples. Now, the fact that he calls these 12 people to be his disciples shouldn't be looked over too quickly, because that's significant, scholars say. Because you see, the original family of God, well, it also had 12 people. If you remember, there were 12 sons of Jacob who formed the foundation of the family of God, the nation of Israel. And so, it's significant, especially when we consider all of the parts of this section here, that when Jesus calls His disciples, when He lays the foundation for this new worldwide family movement, He chooses 12. It's significant. And then, what's also significant is who He chooses to be these 12. They are, as one commentary says, a strange group of people. And by that, you might say, well, four of them 
are fishermen. One of them is a hated tax collector who works for Rome. Another is a zealot, meaning part of a sect, a Jewish sect who wants to overthrow the Roman Empire. So it'll be interesting to see how those two get along with each other, one who works for Rome and one who wants to overthrow Rome. Then there's six others who we don't know a lot about, but none of these 12 seem to be of the elite or religious experts or preachers of any kind. They reflect a little more closely the type of people Jesus has sort of been ministering to up to this point in Mark's gospel. And so we kind of might ask ourselves, what is it that would cause these 12 strange companions to come together and be the foundation of this new family of God? What would cause them to leave their nets, we read? What would cause some of them to leave their father in a family-first culture in the middle of the day on a boat with hired hands to follow Jesus? What would bring people like a, a, a tax collector and a zealot together in one group? And the only answer seems to be that what binds these 12 together is their faith in Jesus is the fact that all 12 of them believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if, if the fact that this family shares one thing in common, their faith in Jesus, isn't clear, it becomes more clear as we work our way through this passage. After this, his family comes, his natural family, to put him away. We'll look at that verse in just a moment. But then he has a run-in with who you might say are the leaders of God's family, the religious leaders. Let's look at that passage. It starts in verse 22, so you just skip down a few verses. And in verse 22, it says this, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So Jesus calls the twelve, forming a new spiritual family, you might say. Second, or a little while later, the leaders of God's family, the religious leaders of Israel come, and what does Jesus conclude about them? 
that they've committed the eternal sin, the sin that can't be forgiven, he says. Could you say that someone is farther away from the family of God than that? And how scholars interpret that is they, they say it's not so much that God wouldn't forgive them, but that if your heart is so hardened that you look at the Savior of the world and you say, that's not the Savior of the world, that's Satan himself, that you may never place your faith in Jesus. And if you're that hardened and that far from faith and you die without him, well, then you die without the Savior of the world. And so faith in Jesus is more important than being the official, recognized, religious leader of God's family. Faith in Jesus is what makes ordinary fishermen part of God's family. And a lack of it excludes even the official leaders of God's family, which is comforting news. It's comforting news to know that you don't have to be some sort of religious expert, that you don't have to have some special background or talent or be from a certain, a certain ethnicity, but that as the family of God grows, it becomes more and more apparent that everyone who's in the family of God has this in common. They look at Jesus and they see their Lord and their Savior. And that is the evidence that they are part of God's very family. And so it should comfort us whenever we feel like God's family is kind of an oddball group of people, I think. Do you ever visit a Bible study or come to a church and you look around and you go, what an odd group of people? You know, I don't think in any other circumstance I'd necessarily choose to be a part of this group. You know, you got people from different backgrounds, different cultures, people of different uh, people who are rich, people who are poor. You got people who are brilliant and people who are like me. And there's part of us in our humanity that kind of goes, oh, I don't want to be a part of that group. No, I'll look for a church that has a bunch of people who are all my political persuasion, who all speak exactly my language the way I speak it, or who all agree with me on all the important issues. That's where I'll feel more comfortable. But I think when it's not that way, when it's an oddball group, a strange group, like the group of first disciples who he called to form the very foundation of his family, that should be comforting to us. Because if there was any requirement to joining the family of God, besides admitting that you can't meet the requirement to join the family of God, besides accepting the one who meets God's perfect standard on your behalf, Jesus Christ, then you wouldn't be allowed in. And neither would all of these oddball people who are from all different walks of life and who are so different, but who are bound together by this, 
they look at Jesus and they see their Savior and their King. I got to be in what you might say was an oddball life group some years ago, a Bible study. Um, <laughs> for one thing, I was in the group, so you can, you can observe right from the get-go, it was probably a weird group. And two people who became my very dear friends in the group, they spoke English as a second language, and this was a, you know, English-speaking Bible study. And they were still in the process, very much so, of learning English. Three of my dear friends who I'd pick up every week for the group, were they had special needs. So we'd pick them up and we'd have our three friends with special needs there. There was one person in the group who was quite a bit younger than the rest of us, which always made it a little bit awkward. There was, um, this is the best part, two people in the group who had ex extremely, extreme opposite political views. One on this end and one on this end, and they both just so happened to be very vocal about it. Isn't that great when that happens? And there were a handful other of others of us in the group as well. And it was a wonderful group. One night, we, uh, we like to play a card game before we do our Bible study. And one night, we had a visitor who was visiting from Germany. And she didn't speak much English, just a little bit of English. And she joins this group of ours, this Bible study, and we play Uno Dare before we do our Bible study that night. So I don't know if you've played Uno Dare, but basically you either have to do embarrassing, awkward dares, or you start losing the game, right? So here we have this group of us oddballs here with a visitor from Germany who hardly speaks English, and we're just laughing our heads off as we play these ridiculous dares and, and try to even understand each other and make sense of what's going on. It just added to it. It was just, it was just hilarious. Another time, and there is a point to this, we, uh, we canceled our Bible study, and we just scheduled a park day, a picnic. So we went to Ronald Reagan Park, and we laid out on blankets and enjoyed lunch and played card games and just had a great time. And the best part, as the sun was just starting to set, we played a game of Ultimate Frisbee together. I didn't know if it was going to work, but it worked we played ultimate frisbee and from time to time in fact probably hundreds of times i reflect back on that on that fun picnic and i'm in my mind's eye throwing the frisbee down the line to my friend with special needs who's running and he catches it in the end zone and my team won the game it was so fun one day, I was reflecting on how much I loved my life group, and one of my friends at church heard me. He's one of the other pastors, and uh, I wasn't a pastor at the time, but, and he said, um, oh, so your life group is what heaven's going to look like. It kind of caught me off guard. I never really thought of it that way. But I thought about it, and I was like, huh. You know, in a way, he's right. Because heaven's going to be a place where it's very diverse, where people from all different ethnicities will be there. People who were young when they went there, who were older, I know we'll have our glorified bodies, 
but you get the point. People who weren't very smart, people who were brilliant, people who would probably, in other circumstances, never choose to be together, in humanly speaking, and yet who will not only be together, but will have the deepest bond of all, the bond of family for all eternity. And so, let's be encouraged when our church is diverse, when our life group is full of people who are odd like us, because it means that faith is what binds us together, just like from the very beginning, the very foundation of the family of God. And if it wasn't faith, then we wouldn't get in, because only Jesus can make us part of his family. And when we realize that we are part of this family because of the gift of faith in Jesus that God gives us, we can begin to make that family a priority in our lives. Sometimes we think of our spiritual family sort of as an optional addendum to our lives. The really important things we all know, it's our careers, it's our natural families, it's our friends, and as we have time, we might squeeze in our spiritual family. But as mind-blowing as this is, and even I will admit difficult to understand for me, the Bible actually calls us to honor and prioritize our spiritual family first. Let's pick up reading again. We'll back up a few verses and start back again in verse 20 of chapter 3. So, verse 20 of chapter 3, okay? Here, 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 and as we read this, listen to how we can prioritize our spiritual family. It says this, starting in verse 20, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Okay, skip down with me now, because what follows is the religious leader thing we read. So let's skip down to verse 31, because his family gets there. It says this in verse 31. Then Jesus, mother and brothers, arrived Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. <clears throat> Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister, and mother. Now, we have to understand when we read what we just read that Jesus is living in a collectivist, honor-shame culture. In other words, family comes first, and it's an honor-shame culture. And what one scholar says, Dr. Hellerman, he says that for Jesus, when his family says we're, sends word, we're outside waiting for you, for Jesus to respond the way he does here, 
brings incredible shame on himself and on his family. He's given a public opportunity to show his loyalty to his family, his mother and his brothers who come to see him. All the more important when you consider that Jesus is the firstborn male of his family, whose job it is to protect and to advance the honor of his family. All the more important when you consider that it sounds like his father is dead, meaning Jesus is the guy to protect and advance his family's honor. So why would Jesus take this opportunity and instead of publicly honoring his natural family, instead distance himself from them, look at his spiritual family and honor them? It's not because, and we know this, biblically speaking from other passages, that Jesus isn't willing to fulfill his moral obligations to his family. He is. It's just that Jesus belongs to two families, a natural family and a spiritual one. We're told that from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The first thing it says about Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his introduction the shortest genealogy that you can give. It links him straight to his father, which means, sure, he's got a natural family. And sure, it's a family that you honor and that you are obligated to, but there's no greater honor than the honor of belonging to the very family of God. And between the two, there's no competition because one is eternal and one is not necessarily eternal. And when we understand this, which again, I admit, I don't fully grasp or even understand its full implications, but other passages of Scripture can potentially begin to make a little more sense. There's lots of them, but one example is Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to turn a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter against her daughter-in-law. A person's enemies will be the members of his own household. That's the end of the quote. Now, if Jesus really did come in a family-first culture to begin a new family, who now is supposed to be your number one family, how is that not at times going to cause conflict between people who up to that point only had one family that demanded their absolute loyalty? Now, while it's difficult to sort of wrap our heads around that, what exactly it means, Dr. Hellerman, one scholar in his book, he, call, he wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family, where he looks in depth 
this whole concept of Jesus beginning a new family. He lists four observations that we can make about the early church and what it meant for them to prioritize their spiritual family. And here's what, here's what he says in his book. He says, one, we share our stuff with each other. He points out that the early church in Acts chapter 2, they seem to take this whole we're a family thing pretty seriously in the sense that if anyone in their spiritual family had a need, they kind of did what you do if someone in your real family had a need. They would sell their belongings or their property to make sure that that person who had just joined the spiritual family, oftentimes at the expense of everything, they'd make sure that they were taken care of. I'm sure that uh, to some degree or another, many of us have experienced that here or in our own home church. I know I have. Maybe it's when you were sick and your church family brought you food. Or maybe it's when, and I've seen this one too, you couldn't make rent. And all you asked for was a loan. But someone in your Bible study paid it and said, don't you dare pay me back. He also observes from the early church that we share our hearts with each other. The early church called each other brothers and sisters. There was no closer loyalty or bond in the ancient world of Jesus than between siblings. It's still this way in cultures in the world, where your loyalty between siblings is even stronger than the bond between husband and wife. And they seem to take that seriously too when you think about passages like John resting his head on Jesus' chest. When you read about them greeting each other with holy kisses, or when Paul writes to the Philippians and calls them his friends, his beloved, his brothers and sisters, his crown, his joy, those he longs for, all in one verse. They shared more than just their stuff. They shared their hearts with each other. And my guess is, here at this church, over the years, as you've spent time with your brothers and sisters in Christ, to some degree or another, you've experienced that too. He says we stay, embrace the pain, and grow up together. One thing you probably never did when you were growing up in your family, if you weren't getting along with your brother or sister, you probably never said, I've decided I will no longer be your brother or I will no longer be your sister. Part of what makes family hard is that it's permanent. But part of what makes it such a blessing is that it's permanent. Is that you say, I'm going to learn how to endure your oddities and your shortcomings. I will endure and learn how to love you better. And as we do that, we grow. In the early church, there was no concept of leaving your church for another church. <laughs> they wrote letters to churches that had doctrinal errors. 
churches that had disagreements, strife, and never once did they say, time for you guys to call it quits. Go find another church. Instead, in so many words, every letter said, your family, stick it out, figure it out, and grow in the process. And lastly, he says, family is about more than just me, my spouse, and my kids. In other words, there may be times where if we take the family thing seriously like they did in the early church, that our, who our natural family is and our spiritual family in certain ways can be blended. Even like when Jesus made sure his mother was cared for by a disciple when he, when he died. My, uh, my mom and dad told us some years ago that we'd be having a new person moving into our house and we were a little shocked. She said, yes, there's someone in my life group who was just in a bad accident. And she's hurt her arm. She's on disability. She can't work. She's going to stay with us until she can recover. Because on top of all of this, they just, she was just notified that she needs to move out of where she's living. So we were like, whoa, okay. Kind of holding our breath. You don't know what's going to happen when someone moves in with you. But thankfully, this single, middle-aged woman, no family nearby, moved in with our family. And it wasn't perfect, but we managed for about six months, and we learned to love her <laughs> and she us. And six months later, we had our emotional goodbye, took our family photo together with her, helped her load the truck, and my mom told me about a, a very touching conversation she had with her. My mom, filled with emotions, said, well, her job was across the country, I forgot to tell you. She said, what are you going to do? She said, you're moving all the way across the country for this job. What if something goes wrong when you get there? What if you, what if you get in another accident or you, or you get fired? Like, what are you going to do? You're going to be all the way on the other side of the country. You don't know anybody. And my mom said that, she said to her, well, when I get there, I'll find a church. And when I get to the church, I'll find a Bible study. And they'll be my family. And then this is what really got me. She says, that's how I found you. And I love that story because it just gives you a taste of what God intended, I think, when he said, I came, when he showed us how he came to begin a spiritual family a global family of weirdos like you and me. My friend uh, Diana Hardley at this church, many of you know her. There's this wonderful woman here at our church named Diana Hardley. And a few years ago, or one, yeah, a few years ago it's been now, um, after her husband Ed went to be with the Lord, she shared with me about something that was happening in her life. She had a very close family, like natural family, much closer than mine and much bigger than mine. And after her husband went to be with the Lord, 
she said, um, basically, her family all wanted her to come live with them, you know, some of them even out of town. But to the family out of town, this is what she told me. She said, I told them, I love you, and I love your church up there. But you don't understand, she said. My church, referring to Ephraim Diamond Bar, she said, my church is my family. Later, she told me she was referring mostly to her Sunday school class, the Joint Heirs, and her life group led by Sherry and Larry Palmblade. And what she meant, of course, is that she's been with these people for so long in Bible study, in prayer, in the ups and downs of life, that she's going to stay. And so she chose to live with family nearby so that she could stay with her family, who she loves so much. Now, maybe when I say that to you and we look at this passage, you think to yourself like, wow, that sounds great, but you know, I've never felt that way about a Christian community. You know, I come to church, and I squeeze it in, and it's awkward small talk, and if I'm lucky, I get to my car before anybody really even sees me. (laughs) Maybe you even go to some sort of Bible study, and it's not too different. The only reason I can speak on this topic with authority is because I stand before you as an awkward expert in this category, okay? I didn't go to church at all. And then I started going out of obligation because people told me you're supposed to go if you're a Christian. So I'm like, oh, introvert's nightmare. And I showed up at E-Free Diamond Bar, this church, and you know what? People were really nice. But it doesn't matter if you're an introvert. You're still just awkward and shy. And, you know, I appreciated it. Don't get me wrong. And, and it, was, it was a beautiful experience to be welcomed and be treated so kind. But it continued to be 90% sort of just an awkward obligation of my religion to come, including coming to a Bible study once a week eventually. That, for me, started to change when I visited Diana Hardley's life group, the woman I just told you about. I visited her life group And they were celebrating birthdays in that life group. And they all knew each other and loved each other. And when the person whose birthday it was, it was their time to celebrate them, one person in the group stood up and just read a letter from everyone in the group to that person. And, of course, the whole room's just laughing the whole way through it because these letters are filled with inside jokes and history and love. And I walked away from that life group, like, disturbed. I was like, how come I have never experienced anything like that? And I've, I've always wanted, I always thought, you know, ideally, church would be like this deep, close, awesome sort of family experience. And God kind of rebuked me because I kind of complained to him about it. And here's kind of like the answer I felt like I got. It was, well, Luke, because you're waiting to meet the perfect life group. You are waiting until you find a group of people who you can just connect with and go deep with and be friends with, and it'll just be awesome. And you're kind of upset that you don't have that. And so 
the challenge I sort of took from that was, what if instead of waiting for the perfect group of people, what if instead I just started loving the people who God had put in the Bible study I was a part of? Kind of like I'd seen happening in that group. And so I took the challenge, having no clue where it would go. This is what I did. It's going to blow your mind. I started praying for the people in my life group. I never prayed for them before that. You know, you listen to the prayer request, you're like, uh-huh, 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 okay. So I just wrote their names down, and when I would do my personal little meeting with me and God, I would just very quickly just pray through each of their names. One week, I sat down to do my homework, and I thought about those people I'd been praying for. So I just sent them a quick text. I said, hey, you know, and by the way, this was the uh, group I mentioned to you earlier of oddballs like me, okay? I said, I'm doing my homework. If any of you wants to read or study or anything like that, you're welcome to come over. They came over, like six of them. And we had a study party. And we did the same thing the next week. And the next week, whenever I'd sit down to do my homework, I'd text them and they'd come over. Someone's birthday in the group rolled around and I'd seen what to do. I bought them a birthday cake, like Diana's group. And we sang them happy birthday. And uh, over time, the atmosphere in this group, kind of like the 12 disciples of weirdos, it started to change. And I knew it wasn't just in my head when one night a young woman in the group showed up late, swinging the door open to the house where we were meeting, and she called out, Hey, family! And I was like, oh, that's what I've been looking for. That evening, we celebrated someone's birthday in the group. We lit the candles, we turned off the lights, we brought it out, we sang happy birthday, and then we all just spontaneously started chanting, speech, 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 and then, you know, finally fall silent. And this gentleman, with tears in his eyes, he says through broken English, no one's ever thrown me a party like this before. I saw the young woman who'd come in late just put her hand on her chest and go, oh, my heart. And that's how I felt too. And so I think when we see Jesus initiating this new family and we see how he prioritizes this family, I think it's also an invitation to imitate the way that he loved and cared for and spent time with that new spiritual family. And so, that's part of what God's family is like. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for humbling us. It kind of hurts to be humbled, but it's also kind of sweet because, Lord, you are so much greater than us, not only in your power and your knowledge, Lord, not only in the fact that you can be everywhere at once, 
but also, Lord, in the fact that you are just and righteous. You always speak the truth. You never mistreat anyone. You're perfect in all of your ways. And thank you for inviting us, Lord, in a small way now as we stumble and fumble to be more like you and for promising us that as we stumble and fumble along together in a spiritual family, that one day we will open our eyes and be with you and with each other in paradise. So keep these verses and this book close to our hearts this week, Lord, and help us to walk in your ways a little bit better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.